Elizabeth, what the hell is a McGubgub? Hey, Miles. What's a what now? McGubgub. It's it's something Jamie Braddock yells at a big Galactus-looking guy in one of the issues we're talking about today. Oh, right. McGubgub is a giant alien that the Enthman fought. Treebeard fought an alien? Not the Ant-Man, the Enthman. John Doe, the ultimate ninja. Uh, okay, I am way more confused than when we started. What's his deal? You know, the usual. Grew up in an orphanage with his friend Alfie, taken in by a ninja master who worked for the CIA, can reverse time and gravity. Uh, okay, sure, sure. Nothing out of the ordinary there. Uh, you mentioned his friend, though, Alfie. Was he a ninja, too? No, no. He was an omniscient reality warper who loved comic books and cosplay. Okay, wait, was he the guy dressed as Galactus in that one Excalibur issue? Yep, and he kind of earned the space theme, too. He traveled the galaxy for a while trying to help various aliens. That's when he fought McGubgub. He was trying to save the Borborgum. McGubgub was attacking the Borborgum? No, that came later. First, they were having troubles with the Arg. Okay, these funny books got some crazy names in them. What is the Arg? A device left by some explorers that could grant omniscience with a touch. And it was called the Arg because... Because that's the noise the newly omniscient Borborgum who touched it made when they lost their minds and jumped to their deaths. What?! I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Elizabeth Alley. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 146 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And Elizabeth, welcome to you. I think this is your fourth stint on the show? It is. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so Jay is out of town this time, and so Elizabeth and I are going to talk about some Excalibur. But uh, in the meantime, what have you been up to? It's been a while. I have been working with Geekcraft Expo, which is a Comic-Con meets Etsy handmade craft market, and also helping promote the Double Clicks, which is Portland's uh, geeky sister uh, folk rock band. Sweet. Uh, having experienced both of those, I can definitely recommend them. Geekcraft had its uh, first Portland Expo this past year, right? Yes, and their next one is going to be June 10th and 11th at the uh, Double Tree. Sweet. Yes, recommend it. If you're in Portland, check it out. What you should also check out is a set of really bizarre Excalibur issues. So, Elizabeth, you and I started talking about X-Men back when you were working at TIFA and I was doing IT for TIFA and Dark Horse. That's things from another world. And as I recall, we would always talk about like our shared love of kind of 80s-ish era X-Men comics and specifically Excalibur. Yes. I mean, Uncanny X-Men was my first love, but Excalibur was like this beautiful, glorious creature that I didn't even know existed, you know, until it was about six issues in. And then I was just blown away by it. You know, I always loved Kitty Pride. I loved Nightcrawler. And Alan Davis's artwork was just so intoxicating and, and gorgeous. It, it's one of my first loves. And I mean, I know for Jay and I, like the two comics that we first collected in their entirety were Excalibur and New Mutants. And I mean, Alan Davis was so much of Excalibur, although obviously he was only there for a minority of the series. Yeah, not nearly enough, Alan Davis. That's right. Get right back here. Go back in time and draw all those other issues that other people drew. <laughs> when I'm the Omniversal Majestrix, it will happen. <laughs> Perfect. I'm going to hold you to that. And in fact, the issues we're covering today, which are 25 through 27, the first three issues after the Crosstime Caper, these are all non-Alan Davis issues, and in fact, only some of them are Chris Claremont issues, because after the cross-time caper, Davis was gone for quite a while, 
And Claremont was not exactly on his way out, but he was kind of getting toward on his way out. Yeah, you can tell he was just kind of wearing out. His heart wasn't quite in it. And it was so funny for me, you know, reading these issues again, I was totally channeling, you know, my 14, 15 year old self who would be enraged when I would open up an issue and it wasn't an Alan Davis issue. I remember being so ready for the cross time caper to end. And by the time it was over, I was so excited to see what would happen next. And I was so ready to see Excalibur actually be a super team in their lighthouse and do something. And then you open it up. Alan Davis is gone. And even Tom Marzikowski, you know, the letterer is gone. And even Glynis Oliver, the colorist, is gone. This is how you uh, can tell someone has their comics bona fides, by the way, if they can say Tom Orzakowski's last name correctly in the first try. <laughs> I practiced. <laughs> he was in Portland for a while, wasn't he? He was. Actually, I got to go to several parties where he attended and I, I got to talk with him about lettering and stuff. He still letters Savage Dragon by hand, or at least he did a few years ago. Oh, man, that's yeah. freaking awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, we have a different collection of creators on these books. We have some very strange plot lines. But I suppose first what we should do to set the stage is to give us an Elizabeth, would you do the honors? Previously on Excalibur. And so, yes, what is the status quo right now? So the cross-time caper is over. Excalibur's back in Earth-616, the main Marvel Universe reality, but with a couple of differences. So Widget is now a more active member of the team, or he's kind of more of a pet. And of course, Kitty was lost in space and time. She is actually back on Earth-616, the main Marvel Universe, where Excalibur is now hanging out with Captain Britain's rich ex-girlfriend, Courtney Ross, not really Courtney Ross. But she doesn't know the team is back, and they don't know Kitty is back. Just like we saw leading up to Inferno with X-Men and X-Factor, having had all of these ways they could have found out the other was alive and just not doing it, we're kind of seeing that with Kitty and then the rest of Excalibur. It is so frustrating. As I had said, like, why wouldn't she go, you know, check in with Commander Thomas? She doesn't know for sure that the team isn't back. Like, why wouldn't you be like, hey, by the way, I'm back. I'm just checking in. If the rest of Excalibur comes back, you know, this is where you can reach me. Yeah, but alas, if characters had better judgment, then the plots, for the most part, <laughs> wouldn't happen. Yeah, yep, yep. Now, another thing that we saw happen during the cross-time caper is that we learned a little bit more about Jamie Braddock, who is the delusional and almost omniscient older brother of Captain Britain and Psylocke. He's been in Earth-616 the whole time. Well, I mean, this version of him has. He's been in other realities as other versions as well. And he's currently working with the asshole banker Nigel Frobisher, who himself is secretly working for the fascist dictator Sassire 9 who has secretly replaced Courtney Ross as much as the book seems to have forgotten that that happened. Yeah, and Nigel doesn't realize that she's sat air nine. He just thinks his boss, Courtney Ross, has become even more of a bitch than he previously thought she was. A little more uh, dominatrixy at the very least. Yeah, yeah, a little more controlling. But, you know, Nigel, you know he gets off on that somewhere. There's a lot going on with Nigel Frobisher. <laughs> uh, so that sets the stage for kind of where we are right now as Captain Britain, Megan, Phoenix, that's Rachel Summers' Phoenix, and Nightcrawler manifest back at their lighthouse headquarters, currently being uh, loomed over by everybody's favorite strangely-hatted giant purple planet-eating dude, Galactus. And, you know, since the tease in issue 24 was Galactus looming over the lighthouse drawn by Alan Davis, I just have to say again, you know, nothing to slam... Chris Wozniak, but to go from Alan Davis's very beautiful, eloquent, you know, cartoony style to something that is a lot blockier and heavier, it, it, it's just such a contrast. I felt like at the time when I read it in real time, they had set up this beautiful moment 
only to be let down in this issue to begin with. Yeah, I mean, Chris Wozniak has done enough Excalibur that I think of him as one of the sort of standard artists for the book, but his style is a very different one than Davis's. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't have that kind of soft fluidity that Davis's art always did. It doesn't have the lightness. Like, you always feel like when you see the characters that they have less gravity than the others. Like, they're on their tiptoes, their hair is kind of floating. They're like, Beautiful soap bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> There's a vivid mental image. Just wearing like, you know, Captain Britain's uniform or whatever. Yeah, yeah. A big bulky soap bubble. <laughs> yes. But that being said, you know, Wozniak's art certainly works well enough for the story. Certainly. And so as far as the premise of the story, why is Galactus here? Galactus is here to claim the Phoenix. He wants to end the threat of the Phoenix Force to the universe by separating Rachel from the Phoenix Force. And he doesn't really care what's going to happen to Rachel in, in the interim. And so his herald comes forth. Now, normally, or I guess most famously, I should say, Galactus's herald is the Silver Surfer. The Silver Surfer has stopped doing that because he didn't like, you know, helping Galactus destroy a bunch of planets. And now it's a lady named Nova. And I actually don't know much about this character, but Elizabeth, you were saying you were more familiar with her. So this is not Nova of the helmet, male Nova. This Nova is Frankie Ray, who I was delighted to see. She uh, originated as an old school Fantastic Four character who went from being a minor character to Johnny's girlfriend, the Human Torch. She had a crazy fear of fire that turned out to be a mental block imposed upon her by her father, Phineas Horton, who was the creator of the original android Human Torch. So she was accidentally doused in a bunch of those fire chemicals as a child and developed fire powers. So her father was afraid about a child using fire powers. So instead of, you know, counseling her or giving her support, he gave her a crippling fear of fire, which turned her into this very timid, fearful, you know, blocked character. So eventually she broke the block. She discovered her powers and you know, it was a beautiful, you know, Johnny finally had this girlfriend who was his equal and they both had fire powers, but she ended up going a little bit off the rails, like the rush of power. She didn't have the moral fiber. She displayed a startling, you know, lack of compunction about killing people. And when Galactus needed a herald, she signed up to the, you know, the horror of the rest of the Fantastic Four. She was basically like, eh, you can't stop me. I got these powers. I'm going off into space. See ya. So let this be a lesson to any parents listening to this episode. If your child is doused with fire chemicals and develops fire powers, you should probably just talk to them about it rather than trying to give them some kind of complex or else Galactus is going to end up with a new herald and a lot of people will probably die. Yeah, I can't tell if this is a cautionary tale to not repress a woman's power or she'll go crazy when she discovers it and help a godlike being eat worlds or you should repress a woman's power more successfully to avoid this, but we may never know. Oh, man. So many complexities in these comics. <laughs> but yeah, so regardless, Nova is here to largely speak for Galactus and talk about his intentions, and Rachel is having none of it. You're kidding, right? And there's this giant boom sound effect as she literally punches Nova to the moon. Pow! To the moon, Nova! <laughs> okay, so this reminds me also of, A, the one time that the Hulk jumped to the moon, which I will never get sick of referencing. I think it may have been more than once, but there was at least once. And, B, the time that the Hulk didn't jump to the moon, but instead threw Fin Fang Foom to the moon. Which, so, that makes it even better, because I love Fin Fang Foom. He's a green dragon with pants and a funny face. <laughs> Hulk and moons, two great tastes that go great together. So, yes. Now, Nova isn't just on the moon itself. She's in a special part of it, right? Of course. She is in the blue area of the moon, which, of course, is where everything important in the Marvel Universe happens. It's like uh, it's like the major hub of the moon for the Marvel U. Right. There's all sorts of inhuman stuff that's happened there. That's where Dark Phoenix died. 
And this is, in fact, where Nova runs into everyone's favorite bald pantsless man, the Watcher. Yes, the Watcher's there. And of course, Nova immediately calls him out on his whole philosophy. He's like, hey, are you actually going to just watch this? Or are you going to step in and do something? Right, because the Watcher is one of those characters where his default status quo only exists for him to break it basically every single time he appears by interfering in some capacity. But also, even though this is basically a cameo for Nova's character, I really love that her reaction to being, you know, slammed all the way to the moon isn't rage or embarrassment. It's like, wow, I survived. That's cool. Okay. Like, she's very much like, I'm still discovering my powers and this is awesome. Frankie Ray, your positive attitude is contagious. We can all learn a lot from it. <laughs> yes. So meanwhile, back on the planet itself, Excalibur, of course, isn't going to let Phoenix go without a fight. And so they attack Galactus. He summons a weird, like, goo monster to uh, take out Captain Britain. We've talked before about how Captain Britain, one of the reasons he works as this big, strong, perfect-in-many-ways dude is because he's always the butt of jokes. He, like, keeps having these pratfalls. And this is no exception here. Like, it's really fun to see Captain Britain bravely charge forward, only to be covered in goo and incapacitated almost immediately. Yeah, it's something that really bothered me when I was younger, in a way, that he was just this buffoon all the time. But I kind of love that about him now. Like, we were talking earlier about how Captain Britain, Brian, is this character who's been blessed with an embarrassment of riches. You know, he's an upper class, you know, English gentleman. If he's not royalty, he's the next best thing. He was blessed by Merlin to be Captain Britain, but... Because, you know, he didn't have to work for anything. He hasn't really learned anything. And even though he has all these powers and everybody kind of turns to him to be the leader, his instincts are almost always wrong. And in fact, Megan comments on him having made a bad decision here. Next time, wait for Nightcrawler's cue. Maybe then you won't get in such a fix. Yeah, so even Megan is calling him on it, which, of course, there was always kind of that uneasy power differential between them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that's been developing really since the start of the series. When we first met Megan, she was very timid and um, happy to just be under Brian's wing and, you know, take his lead in every regard. But as she's come into her power more and more, by contrast, he seemed a little bit less competent and a little bit less together. I think the important difference between the two of them is that Brian has all these, you know, blessings, but he has very little ambition and he's very ambivalent about being a hero. Mm -hmm. He's basically only Captain Britain because he feels the last time he stopped being Captain Britain, his sister Betsy was blinded and then died with the X-Men. So it really wasn't his choice. Whereas with Megan... This was her choice, and she grows, you know, more and more confident in it. It's also interesting seeing how the dynamic of the rest of the team is developing. So we were talking about Megan, you know, taking the lead a little bit more. One character who's very much taking the lead is Nightcrawler, which Rachel notices. Yeah, she says, you're the boss, Fuzzy. Funny, now that I mention it, he almost always is. Which is kind of neat, because back in the day when Nightcrawler was leading the X-Men briefly— when Storm and Cyclops were both off the team, he did a bad job. It did not work out, and eventually Kitty Pride ended up taking over, like, a 13-year-old girl over this hardened, you know, superhero. I mean, I think that's one thing I love about Excalibur and really the comics that I love the best, when they have a real character-growing moment like that. It makes you happy to see that Nightcrawler is succeeding. Right. It's like, oh, Kurt, you're all grown up. Now you can give orders that don't involve people getting horribly injured all the time. And it feels earned. Like, he's been through so much at this point, and he's been gravely injured, and he's chosen to go on. He's chosen to start this new team. Like, he's really learning from his past experiences instead of wallowing in, you know, all that he's lost. Absolutely. So as for where to go next, Alistair Stewart, that's the professor of the Weird Happenings organization that's been accompanying Excalibur through the Crosstime Caper, 
He's got an idea, so he asks Phoenix for a ride into the lighthouse as this big battle's going on. So, yes, Phoenix scoops him up and they go straight into the basement of the lighthouse, which, of course, as regular readers know, is some sort of interdimensional portal that turns into some big, like, rock show. When I was reading this, I had this knee-jerk, oh, this was never wrapped up, but spoiler alert... Later on, when Alan Davis comes back, he does actually wrap up this loose end. So they run into this kind of strange rock concert, and then it's back to the basement. Right, where Alistair literally picks up a sonic screwdriver. Like, it's not just kind of a sonic screwdriver. I mean, it looks a little bit different, but it's clear that it is, as he mentions that it's a device that he got from, quote, some chap from Gallifrey. And wasn't it in his pocket? Like, they didn't even need to go in the basement. Didn't Rachel say, like, check your pocket because he couldn't find it and it was yeah, there? Yeah, exactly. Like, wouldn't that have helped them during the cross timekeeper? You know, you would think so, but Alistair Stewart is the kind of character with his head in the clouds enough that I can see him just not thinking about it because of all the other cool shit that was going on. I totally think of him as bumbling proto-Giles, you know? like He kind of is, yeah. Yep, yeah. yep, yep. A little more interested in romance. Uh, no, I mean, he's totally got a thing for Rachel Summers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, he also has a sonic screwdriver, which is kind of great. <laughs> so as Alistair and Rachel are, you know, seeking out their Gallifreyan technology, meanwhile, the rest of Excalibur, Captain Britain, Megan, and Nightcrawler, they're fighting more monsters. And Galactus, he uh, has this device he's planning to use to depower Rachel, to separate her from the Phoenix Force. Captain Britain smashes it. He just rebuilds it right away. So Captain Britain's line, I kind of love this. Next time, then, we'll do a more thorough job. And that's his solution. Like, punching it once didn't work? Well, I bet punching it twice will. Which is pretty funny because, as we've talked I kind of ad nauseum, is that Brian does have this technical scientific background. You'd think he would be able to come up with something better than punch it. Well, and that's something that I kind of enjoy about Brian. Like, you were talking about how he hasn't really had to earn much of the power he's been granted. When it comes down to it, the only thing he's worked very, very hard at is his scientific background, which now he almost never gets to use. So I can see him almost kind of forgetting that that's even an option, especially on a team with a character like Alistair Stewart, who's good at, you know, science in general, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. Kitty Pride, who's really good at computers. Like, he just gets typecast as the big punchy brute, and so that's the role he plays because he doesn't remember he can be anything else. But as usual, instead of being the puncher, he is the punchy as he gets knocked off the lighthouse again. As Nightcrawler points out, the man has the most remarkable knack for getting hit. And then Galactus chimes in. It is a wonderment to me, these puny beings' constant refusal to accept their limitations, as well as their proper place in the cosmos. In the totality of my existence, I have never encountered the like. So when I first reread this, I thought he was referring to Excalibur specifically, and I was kind of like, um, you know, you fought the Fantastic Four in the Avengers, dude, but now I think he just means Earthlings in general. Okay, well, that's fair. Yeah. And to be fair, I mean, he's not the only uh, alien of any sort to describe Earth this way. Like, sure. every time an alien shows up, they're like, oh, right, Earth. Ooh, this place. No, they, they fight back really hard, often while wearing very bright colors and capes that seem impractical. <laughs> yeah, that flashes me back to uh, the men issue of the X-Men, where uh, they all attack all the X-Men men in the desert with the gene bomb, and they quickly uh, are chased away by Havoc. Right, yeah. As, you know, the X-Men point out, this is, you know, that planet. In fact, don't they reference the fact that this is the planet that has scared off Galactus before? I believe so, yes, yes. Oh, man. Good going, Earth. Huzzah! Woohoo! So we already know the Watcher is here watching, and then suddenly Roma shows up as well. So this is uh, apparently a pretty big cosmic event. It is, yeah. Now, Roma is, uh, to remind everyone, the daughter of Merlin. She's one of the people that gave Captain Burton his powers, and she also helps run the Omniverse. 
So it almost feels like a cheat here because Claremont is setting up this confrontation as incredibly high stakes. We have Galactus trying to depower a fundamental force of the universe, the Phoenix. We have the Watcher and Roma watching this. And then almost immediately after, another figure shows up, that being quite literally death. Yeah, this sets it up to be a major event, which also just makes me rue the fact that Alan Davis is not drawing this. I'm sorry to beat a dead horse, but all (laughs) these people in the same room, cosmic event, it should be Alan Davis. Oh, man, that would have been pretty amazing. In, in, In an alternate reality, in Earth, you know, some number or another, I think it actually happened that way. Now, what I like about death here is it's not just the Grim Reaper or whatever. We see death in many forms, and that's something that's been the case in the Marvel Universe many times before. Like, as you may recall, Daniel Moonstar has dueled death for the life of her friends and teammates before, and he showed up a certain way. We've seen death show up a certain way for Thanos, the mad tyrant who's in love with her. And here we see death in a few forms. Now, there is that, you know, female death that Thanos has seen. There's also straight-up death from the DC comic Sandman, which is kind of awesome. I enjoy that they had almost the audacity to put her in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was well done. And then we have another version of death, which I had to look up because this one is really obscure. It's sort of this burly, handyman, vaguely Western-looking character. I thought it was the cowboy death we've seen that Daniel has talked to in the past, but no, this is a different one. This is a character from classic X-Men number 43's backup story. Yeah, and he kind of looks like a lumberjack. I refer to him as lumberjack death. Lumberjack death, there we go. (laughs) Which, in like, I guess a Terry Pratchett world, would mean that he would be the death that would specifically come for lumberjacks. Yeah, yeah, you know, they kill trees, death comes for you too. It's all full circle. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But death is very chummy with a phoenix, because as you mentioned in that classic X-Men number 43 backup, his story was with Jean Grey. Yeah, or as it technically turned out with the Phoenix Force that thought she was Jean Grey. Yes. But yeah, so we have all these cosmic forces arrayed, and we also have Rachel having to confront the fact that she herself houses a cosmic force. She's kind of almost a peer to the other immensely powerful beings here, and her uh, interaction with Death is especially cool. Now, it's interrupted by Nova's return, but I love the way she says, You and me, pal, we're not done. Youngster, so long as a single star burns in the firmament, you and I, we're never done. Rachel and Death, star-crossed lovers. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. So, you know, there's a big fight, and everyone tries a lot of things. Like, Phoenix actually throws Nova at Galactus. Alistair attempts to use a sonic screwdriver to uh, basically send Galactus away through time and space. It doesn't really work, though. So then it's Megan's turn as she collapses, but then starts drawing on all the power of the world to grow huge enough to confront Galactus, which kind of stops Rachel short. She realizes that Megan can and is about to destroy the world to destroy Galactus just to save Rachel's life. And she realizes, you know, my life isn't worth you know, the entire world, and she gives up. Yeah, she turns herself in. Man, she's come a long way from that one old Secret Wars 2 issue where she was willing to eradicate all life in existence just to stop the Beyonder. Mm-hmm. Again, another moment of character growth. So, what you know, well done, non-Alan Davis Excalibur. Huzzah! You've evolved from <laughs> genocide to sacrifice. That's <laughs> definite progress. And with the stakes having been built up so high with all these cosmic forces witnessing what's going on, you really do get a sense of the gravitas of this. Like, Even though the creative team isn't quite as solid as it's been in previous issues, 
even though this feels not of a kind with the way the series has been so far, and even though the series seems to be struggling to figure out what it wants to do, nonetheless, at this moment, like, I really bought it. I knew mm-hmm. what was going to happen, and I was still right there emotionally as Rachel was maybe going to die. And I think it's a great echo of when the original Dark Phoenix decided to sacrifice herself on the moon. Exactly, yeah. There are some nice goodbyes as well. I mean, Alistair comes up to Rachel, and she already knows that he is in love with her at this point. I suppose I should say something witty to sublimate the pain. Hush, silly man. I know how you feel. Always have. I'm sorry I could never return the same. And she gives him a kiss. Yeah, and it's it's nice. And it's also a nice wrap-up to that love triangle. It's finally like someone definitively saying, no, I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. And that gives the characters the ability to move on a little. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what really works for me is that as Rachel is strapped into this giant Galactus-looking device, it actually kind of reminds me of the planet that the Mystery Science Theater logo is on. That's just sort of made of a bunch of junk. Galactus' mm-hmm. technology always looks that way to me. Yeah, yeah. Like, it looks like it shouldn't work, but of course he's Galactus, so it does work. He doesn't have to worry about aesthetics. See his whole costume. So. Right. I mean, are, are you going to yell at a guy with a hat that big who eats planets? I'm not. <laughs> and so, yeah, she's strapped into this thing about to be de-phoenixified and thus to die. Everyone's looking away, but Nightcrawler, he himself refuses to. I must. One of us must bear witness. We owe her that much at least. So as Rachel is starting to be separated from the phoenix, they start noticing, hey, the stars are dying out. And Roma, the Watcher, and Death explain, Phoenix is life and death. So to separate it from its flesh is to end those concepts, to turn the universe into a void, which would be bereft of substance for Galactus. So if Galactus eliminates the Phoenix Force, he's basically killing himself. Yeah, he's just going to be wandering around in, like, the blackness of space until he starves to death. Which, as we know with Galactus, the dude's quite peckish very frequently. Yes, he likes his snacks. Oh, what did Gambit say? He likes his yum-yums? That's it. <laughs> yeah, and at, you know, as they're explaining this to him, it's almost like Roma and the Watcher and the Death are kind of having an intervention for Galactus. They're like, are you having thoughts of self-harm, Galactus? Or do you actually want to kill yourself? And Galactus just kind of gets mad and is like, fine, I'm out of here. Yeah, he does seem sort of cosmically pouty. Yeah, it's yeah. Great. He takes his, his junk toys and he stomps off with Nova in tow. And so that's basically that. Like, the day is saved, Rachel's okay, and the team can get on to being the team. They can get on to being back in Earth-616. So yay for them. Thanks for, you know, preventing all life in the universe from ending. And thank you for having the cross-time caper finally be over. Finally. (laughs) (laughs) So that takes us to yet another strange fill-in issue. This is number 26. And not only do we have a different artist for this issue, we also have a different writer. This one's written by Michael Higgins and drawn by Ron Lim. And that's a creative team that may be familiar because that fill-in issue during the Cross Time Caper, number 20, that's the issue that they did, the one with the demon druid. Yeah, and actually they seem to bring some plot lines from issue number 20 to this one. There is some continuity between the two issues, whether that was the original intent or not. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not really sure because this is an issue that takes place before the Cross Time Caper, just like that one fill-in issue number 20 did. So I get the impression that it was just created by Higgins and Lim. It was just sort of put on deck for whenever they needed a fill-in, and that just happens to be now. Sure, sure. It's funny, when I reread this, again, 25 years later, at first, I was just enraged. You know, I was echoing my 15-year-old rage, like, you know, it's not the same creative team in any respect. It's not in continuity. It felt like such a lame, like, hastily put-together fill-in issue. But after rereading this, 
you know, a couple of times, I realized it's actually a pretty solid story that really has a lot of good callbacks to the history of Rachel and other characters. And I feel like it would have actually worked better as an annual where it wouldn't have been expected to be in continuity and they would have been able to flesh it out probably just a little bit. And it's interesting that you say that because the general premise of this issue is that Franklin Richards, the child of uh, Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman, who was Rachel Summers' lover in Days of Future Past in the Earth 811 timeline that she comes from, shows up and uh, he and Rachel get back together. And speaking of annuals, the annuals that came out right around this time, that was the Days of Future Present series of annuals that we're going to be covering pretty soon, which were about Franklin Richards coming back and, among other things, hanging out with Rachel Summers. So that's a strange juxtaposition. Like, we go from zero to 60 in terms of our Franklin Richards saturation. Yeah, it's like, were they brainstorming? And this was one of the ideas that they threw out. And they're like, and eh, not for this, but keep it just in case. We might have a use for this one. Yeah, it's hard to say. But I do agree with you. Like, a lot of these issues, I mean, they don't feel of a kind with what we've seen from the standard creative team of Excalibur. But there's a lot of good stuff to be found. And that's one of the things I like about the close readings that we do for the podcast mm -hmm, is you can mm -hmm. find a lot of really good stuff that you might have missed the first time when you were reading through an issue much more quickly. So it's been fun. Like I'm a person who enjoys being positive about things. Yeah. yeah. So having more of a chance to do that by just like, you know, going over every X-Men issue I can with a fine tooth comb. It's kind of great. It is. It's nice to have some time and some space and hopefully a little bit of maturity <laughs> to be able to read these again and find the good in it and to really kind of put the connections together. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I definitely didn't connect this number 20 the first time I was reading them just because I was like burning through them so quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyway, like we said, this is an issue set before the cross time caper, except as usual, Widget is up and about when in reality he wasn't before the cross time caper. But whatever, that's almost like a canonical mistake at this point. It happens so yep, often. Yep, yep. It's like an in joke or something. So how do we start in this strange fill in sequel issue? So Rachel dreams of a Sentinel's hand blast disintegrating Franklin in Earth 811. She's basically reliving her time in Days of Future Past. And way to call back to one of the most iconic covers ever. Oh, man, the one where Wolverine's getting disintegrated? Yeah, it's like the same kind of visual. And the narration here is suitably epic. It is a moment Rachel will never be able to forget. Unless, of course, something compels her to. A force that can tamper with her very mind. And that is precisely what is happening. Spoilers! <laughs> yup. <laughs> but it's back to Earth 811 as Rachel saves Franklin from the blast this time. Yeah, basically her memory of what happened in Days of Future Past has been overwritten. Like, before, she lost her lover to a Sentinel's hand zappy, and now, no, it worked out okay. She actually managed to stop the Sentinel, and he was fine, and history proceeded from there. Yeah, and this isn't suspicious at all. No, well, I mean, it makes sense, because Rachel's a character who has had her memories scrambled a number of times. Sure. I mean, by Spiral and Mojo, and, you know, probably the fact that a cosmic force is stuck inside her head as well. And so I can see her being a little more susceptible to further brain scrambling. Absolutely. So then we cut to Kurt, who's consoling Megan, who's upset about Brian being such a dick to her. This is another callback to issue 20, where Brian is suddenly being more of a dick than usual. I mean, we've seen him be sort of a dick before, yes, but I think we described him as being the very dictionary definition of a cad in issue number 20, and he really is. He's just such an asshole. Yeah, it's like he's trying to piss her off. I mean, in fact, when he comes in and he sees Megan and Nightcrawler emotionally canoodling, he just has really no patience for it. Yeah. Well, well, isn't this a touching little scene? I don't need this aggravation. I'm getting as far away from here, as far away from all of you, as possible. 
Maybe I'll drop you a line sometime. Cheerio. Wow. Brian Braddock, you are truly the worst when you're written by Michael Higgins, drawn by Ron Lim, and in this two-part storyline. Is Cheerio like the British version of the South's Bless Your Heart? Is Cheerio the new, like, polite fuck you? (laughs) I think it may very well be, yeah. Which really makes you wonder about the cereal now that I think about it. But Megan responds by picking up Kurt and being like, well, let's go somewhere where we can be alone. Which, of course, for me, makes me shake my head at this very bad decision. You know, with Megan, she had a very starved life. You know, she had a very limited view of the world. And as soon as she kind of came into her power, she became entranced with Brian, you know, this very strong person. And she's also somebody who tends to just meld with whoever is nearest to her. And at this point, I just want to be like, Megan, just leave the team, go to college, become your own person before you, you know, start a romance with another teammate. Yeah, and I mean, Kurt's a little concerned as well. She finally seems to be coming around, he thinks to himself. But I've got to be careful. Can't move too quickly with someone who's obviously on the rebound. So Jay and I have talked a lot about whether Nightcrawler and Megan's relationship is platonic or romantic. And I realize this issue is not by Chris Claremont. It's not by the main writer of the series. But it seems pretty clear here that it's more than just him being a good bro. Yeah, I mean, it was always my impression that they had a thing for each other and that I could see very easily why Nightcrawler would be drawn to someone like Megan. They both have a similar history of being, you know, kind of despised by looking different. Well, although Megan has been able to transform herself, they both kind of have a a Romani type background. And I could see them having very similar past circumstances that would draw Nightcrawler to Megan. But at the same time, Megan is still in a space where She's kind of just drawn to the strongest person in the room. I don't think that puts her in a good space to have a relationship of equals. And I mean, ultimately, she'll grow more as a character. And ultimately, she will end up with Captain Britain for the most part. But I don't know. I think it's some interesting soap opera stuff going on here, especially as Brian has like turned his asshole factor up to a thousand. (laughs) That is a mental picture I did not think I was going to have today. (laughs) Brian Braddock and the asshole factor. Do not take your kids to see this. We need a spinoff. I want Asshole Factor as a limited series. <laughs> you get um, Quicksilver, uh, Brian Braddock. Um, who else is a huge asshole in the Marvel Universe? Okay, so you got uh, Emma Frost as well, Monet Saint-Croix. They can both be kind of horrible. Absolutely. Uh, North Star, depending on, you know, where his blood sugar is at. Oh, uh, and Namor, of course. You gotta have Namor. Oh my god, the king of the dicks. Oh my god, the asshole factor. Write it down. This will be a thing. This is gonna be the next X-Men <laughs> spin-off. I know Resurrection's already mostly set, but Marvel, if you're listening, I think there's room for one more book. <laughs> so, anyway, I got all distracted now. <laughs> So the point is, uh, yes, Kurt and Megan go off and do their own thing. Rachel's been having weird dreams, but eventually, of course, all dreams must end. And she wakes up and meets up with Kitty Pride, and they decide to go shopping. They decide that things have been just way too stressful and way too busy lately. And they need to go hit up the mall and, you know, buy some stuff, get some commerce therapy. Which I love because, again, it's another throwback to kind of classic X-Men continuity. When the going gets tough, they either play baseball or they go to the mall. I guess they could do both simultaneously, but I feel like that would break things even more than normal. (laughs) They don't need that trouble. So while they're at the mall, um, not only do they find exciting deals on the latest stylish products, but they find Franklin Richards. You know, that guy from an alternate future that Rachel was in love with and he died, but then in her memories, it turns out he didn't. Yeah, he's just, you know, shopping for shirts. Yeah, I love how her undead, you know, uh, previous timeline boyfriend just happens to be shopping at the Gap. I mean, this will be sort of justified later, but for right now, it's just a wonderful blah moment, which I really do enjoy. 
And Rachel's overjoyed and Franklin's overjoyed because they never thought they would see each other again. And he explains very quickly what the basic gist of it is, which is that everything succeeded. The plan to send Kitty Pride's consciousness, or Kate Pride, I suppose, her consciousness back in time to prevent the future from getting all messed up, it totally worked. The only thing is that the Nimrod Sentinel, which of course we've seen, you know, do bad things a little while back, escapes back to the past. And so he's just going to find it, clean up the loose end, and then everything will be totally 100% perfect. Of course, there's nothing suspicious about this at all. But uh, Kitty finds them in a coffee shop. And as Rachel goes to introduce Franklin to Kitty, Kitty is suddenly flooded with memories of Franklin. She knows him or remembers him in the moment. And this is kind of weird because while Kitty has certainly met the young Franklin Richards, specifically in the Fantastic Four X-Men miniseries that we covered a long time ago, where he was the most adorable Moppet of all time and it was really, really great, adult Franklin she shouldn't have had any experience with. Exactly, because while she was back in the future, in Days of Future Past, she was unconscious in Kate's body. But regardless, they head back to the lighthouse to hang out and catch up. And, you know, Kitty wants to check out the new software she bought while she's at it and give these two lovebirds a little bit of space. But Lockheed, of all creatures, is suspicious. She can tell there's something up with Lockheed, and she puts it together that there's something up with Franklin because, you know, Kitty, too, is uneasy. I think she senses that those memories that she has are not quite right. So she tries to go back downstairs, but she keeps ending up back in her room, even when she faces. So clearly something is not okay, and we, the reader, find out exactly what is not okay. As Franklin says, hey, you know, I could tell you what was going on, but how about we just mind link? I think that would be a lot more efficient. Yeah, it's like we could have a handshake, but let's tongue kiss instead. (laughs) (laughs) He moves very quickly and they are sitting on a sofa. And, you know, with the Phoenix Force, it is kind of like being in front of a fireplace. So really, Franklin takes Rachel. He's going to lay her down in front of the fireplace. And we realize this is danger, danger, Rachel. One cosmic thing is going to lead to another. (laughs) And in fact, it quickly becomes apparent that things are not okay. Because Franklin suddenly starts villain narrating about how soon the power will be his, and we see this, like, giant silhouette in front of a big spacescape, and this is looking kind of familiar. Absolutely. Longtime readers of the X-Men, as soon as you see the weird silhouette space guy, you realize that this is most likely Mastermind, the man who uh, corrupted the original Jean Grey to turn her into the Black Queen and then accidentally unleashed Dark Phoenix, which meant she ate a sun and a planet full of asparagus people died. Exactly. That was a very concise uh, description there. Well done. Well done. Thank you. you. (laughs) (laughs) And so Rachel herself, she's not really worried too much. I mean, she just thinks to herself as all this is going on and she's only vaguely aware of the actual circumstances around her. After all, what could possibly be wrong now that I'm in Franklin's arms once again and she's making out with air? Right, like we the readers see her back in the living room just embracing nothing. And I mean, okay, no judgment. I definitely did that a number of times as a teenager myself. But, you know, Rachel, you're a grown-ass woman. Come on, you know. Well, and Rachel's never been somebody who's been portrayed as being bowled over by romance or particularly physical in a romantic way, even though she's someone who's always been very sexualized and very comfortable with her body. This is kind of a jarring display of behavior from her. So Kitty's freaking out more and more because suddenly reality is geographically cycling back upon itself. So she's overjoyed when Megan and Nightcrawler get back from, you know, whatever date they've been doing to say hello. And she gets it. She remembers Franklin from when she was in Kate's body. Even though she was unconscious, she was still apparently dimly aware, you know, of what was going on around her. 
Right, it never really focused on it in the comics, but apparently while the consciousness of Kate Pride was in Kitty Pride's body back in the present, the consciousness of Kitty Pride was in the future in Kate Pride's body. And we're going to find out a lot more about what happened with all of this stuff, and I believe Excalibur number 66 and 67, which will tie pretty heavily into the exact nature of Widget and get so freaking weird. But that is a story for another day. In the meantime, Kurt has put it all together. He's been after the Phoenix Power for quite some time. And he's a master at manipulating the minds of others. So yes, this confirms that it is indeed mastermind. So first of all, romantically pursuing a woman and her daughter, as in Jean and Rachel, even if it's a cover for Dastardly Deeds, even if really she's the daughter of a different Jean Grey, is just gross. Plus, Rachel is a lot more street smart and ruthless than Jean ever was, so you would think harder to manipulate. Plus, dude, the last time you messed with a phoenix... You unleashed Dark Phoenix, which led to the deaths of millions of asparagus people. So could you just not? Mastermind, as I believe we've said before, you are legitimately the worst. Meanwhile, on Muir Island, the not-evil-sexy Moira yet, because, you know, this is still back in the past, notices that one of her sleeper's cells is behaving strangely. Maybe it's Polaris later? No. Maybe it's Proteus, the one time that something happened with him. Mm-hmm. No. I gotta say, like, she needs a better sleeper cell technology. We'll, we'll come back to this. So the plan, right, because we now have Nightcrawler, we have Megan, and we have Shadowcat trying to figure out what to do since Phoenix is clearly being manipulated by Mastermind. So what they have to do, obviously, is play dress up. Of course, the most Excalibur of Excalibur plans. We have Kitty disguising herself as Kate, Megan transforming herself into the Black Queen Jean, which the perfect touch Uh, Yeah, we have Lockheed behind the Black Queen, breathing fire out of each nostril to sort of make a big phoenix flare around her, around the Black Queen. It's kind of great. So they adopt these personas to try to, you know, knock Rachel out of her kind of brainwashing stupor and to inflame, you know, Mastermind. And in fact, it does draw him out. I have no desire to hide from you. In fact, I have been among you for some time now. And here we have first Captain Britain. And then he transforms into Jason Wingard. So we find out, in fact, not only was Jason Wingard imitating Franklin Richards, but apparently he's been imitating Captain Britain as well. And I guess that's why he's been such an asshole in this issue in the previous Michael Higgins, Ron Lim one. Yeah, super douche Captain Britain turns out to have been mastermind, which doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, I guess you could make a case for him wanting to impersonate Captain Britain so he could be among Excalibur long enough to try to figure out more of a plan But uh, he wasn't doing a really good job at being Captain Britain. Well, right. I mean, you know, maybe you could uh, try to turn the team against each other and thus weaken them and weaken Rachel's resolve or something like that. But I think all he really succeeded doing was making the rest of the team think that Captain Britain was being a douchebag. Yeah, even more of a douchebag than normal. But regardless, it does eventually work as Rachel is pulled out of the whole thing. While Mastermind is distracted, Kitty does manage to shock Rachel out of her stupor. And at this point, I mean, everybody knows this is kind of over. Once you unleash the phoenix on somebody, that's eh, not going to go well for that person. Exactly. Rachel says, You counted on deceit to keep my mind clouded, but that's over now. You may have tapped into the power, but I am the power. And she flares up all badass, and Wingard just sort of cowers in front of her, and she continues just being terrifying. How dare you toy with me? How dare you display such contempt for my feelings, for my very life? I could kill you right here and now. Instead, you will feel the pain, the horror you fear most. Once you have tasted the power, how will you deal with the emptiness that is left behind? And Mastermind is just 
gone at this point. She just like basically fries out half his brain. And really, how could he not think it would end this way? I mean, he couldn't do it against Jean, who was far more naive and trusting. Rachel's been around the block many times. Like, I just don't see any scenario where this would have worked. Well, it kind of makes sense that he would have the poor judgment to make the attempt just because we find out, I believe it was in uh, Uncanny X-Men 175 where Mastermind comes back for the first time after the Dark Phoenix saga, that he's gotten sort of addicted to this expansive omniscience that the Phoenix used to blow his brain open the first time around in the Dark Phoenix saga. So it almost feels like a, a drug addiction to me. Sure, sure. Yeah, he's seeking that high and becoming more desperate. But uh, in the meantime, Rachel's crying as Kitty comforts her and Rachel just asks, you know, basically, why can't I ever have a happy ending? And it's true for as much as I kind of poke fun that it's unrealistic that Franklin would be alive. There's so many improbable things that have happened in Rachel's life. Why couldn't one of those improbable things be a good thing? Right. I mean, the answer, of course, is because it's X-Men and characters can't have nice things basically ever. (laughs) But it is sad. I mean, of all of the characters, certainly in Excalibur with their various dark pasts, I think Rachel has lost the most. She's seen the most death and destruction and despair. And man, she just cannot catch a break. She's lost the most and she's the one who seems to stay in stasis the most. Like you don't really see her build new relationships or build more power. Everything kind of stays the status quo with her. You know, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about it that way. And I mean, that may be part of why so many writers since Excalibur have had such a hard time knowing what to do with Rachel Summers. With a character that powerful, I've had lots of people, you know, comment, she's so powerful. Why does she need a team? And if she's so powerful, what can you do with her to grow other than taking away her powers, you mm-hmm. know, which they do or limit her powers on several occasions? But yeah, it, it's it's a limit to her. I'll be really interested to see what Mark Guggenheim does with her in the upcoming X-Men Gold. I think she's got a new uh, codename, Prestige, and a new costume. And I, I, apparently part of that I was reading in a recent interview is that Kitty encourages Rachel to finally have her own identity, not based around her family or based around the Phoenix Force. So that could potentially be really cool. Yeah, I'm glad you cued me into that because I'm definitely going to add that to my box. So anyway, we have some denouement here. Now that Mastermind is once again drooling on the ground, we find out what happened. Apparently... Captain Britain was at Muir Isle, and Mastermind broke out of his holding cell, secretly switched places with him, and had been impersonating him for quite some time. And again, we have to say, how does Moira not notice? And this seems to happen a lot. Her son Proteus almost starves to death and then escapes. Captain Britain somehow gets lured in. I have to assume he was lured in there by a bottle of whiskey and a picture of Courtney Ross. <laughs> but basically, Moira needs to hire some staff. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, and the same thing will happen to Polaris in current continuity where we are right now. She'll get stuck in there by Legion. It seems like there are a lot of options. I mean, even if the built-in sensors aren't working, like, have a Madrox dupe. Just watch the place. Madrox is working there these days, right? Or, shit, get a freaking baby monitor. Come on. Exactly. I like to think that Brian, you know, did try to talk to Moira and be like, help me, help me, I'm Captain Britain. And Moira's like, ah, ha, ha, mastermind. Good try. I'm not going to fall for this. But then we were also wondering, how did this happen at all? And Miles and I discussed it, and we decided we like the idea of Moira calling in Captain Britain as a consultant on some sort of science-y, computer-y thing, which calls back to his, you know, background, which we don't think is used enough. So that would be kind of a plot-based good reason for Captain Britain to be there, mastermind, spies him, and it's just kind of a crime of opportunity. Right, so there's our no prize as far as why mastermind took over potentially the least useful member of Excalibur for this specific purpose. Just for this purpose. Yes, yes. He's good at, well, he's better at getting punched than he is at punching things. (laughs) I guess he's good at both. Yes. So one thing I was reminded of here, because mastermind, he gets his mind blown out, basically, 
But what we find out as he's put back into his holding cell in Muir Isle is that in his mind, he actually has one. He has achieved this cosmic omniscience again. And it actually calls back to something that Hub and Corey were talking about on Tighten Up the Defense, their Teen Titans Defenders podcast that they're doing these days, where in the first appearance of Deathstroke, his assistant, the Ravager, not the woman who would later be the Ravager, not his daughter, gets killed. And so to make him have a happy death, one of the telepaths basically gives him a vision of having brutally slaughtered and dismembered all of the Titans, and then he can go peacefully into the next life, you know, thinking that he did, in fact, cause all of this pain and torture. Happy, comforting memories. I mean, you know, I guess if you're a villain, that's what does it for you, so okay. And as we get to the end of this, I just have to say, I'm so glad we reread this because... You know, in hindsight, I enjoy this story so much more than when I read it when I was 15. Yeah, seriously. But we still have one more, and boy howdy, is it a doozy. It is. In the cold open, we referenced the Nth Man and a lot of the stuff surrounding him, and that's because of this issue, Excalibur number 27. So Chris Claremont's back to write it, and the art team is actually Barry Windsor Smith on pencils, the guy that did Life Death, the guy that did that one story with Wolverine fighting Lady Deathstrike in the snow with Katie Power there. And inked by Bilson Kevich. Yeah, you know, that Bilson Kevich. So yeah, this is kind of a mind-blowing team. And it doesn't seem anything like the Alan Davis era of Excalibur, but it does very much seem like itself. Like, the art is strong and defined and weird and kind of great. I'm conditioned as an X-Men fan that when I see a Barry Windsor Smith issue, I just expect something unique and apart from normal continuity, and I'm down with that. So this issue is an anomaly, but it is tied into Excalibur continuity. Like issue 26, the storyline delves into the character's backstories, and here it's Brian's with his brother, super-powered, insane madman, Jamie Braddock. Yeah, and that's not the only infrequent character we see, because basically the entire cast of The Nth Man appears. Now, The Nth Man, The Ultimate Ninja, that's its full title, which is a great title, that was written by Larry Hama and drawn by Ron Wagner, it was actually not set in the Marvel Universe, even though it was published by Marvel, which was a rarity at the time. So it was about, you know, an American ninja, the ultimate one, I guess. It was actually set in Earth 8908. And interestingly, this issue, Excalibur number 27, came out the same month, I believe, as the final issue of The Nth Man, which makes you kind of wonder, like, was Chris Claremont just a giant fan of The Nth Man? I would think he he was. Exactly. On one hand, it seems really bizarre, but on the other hand, I kind of like that this is back in a time when things weren't so marketing-based. You know, you would think they would do a crossover of a comic to try to boost sales, that they wouldn't bother with a comic that is ending. So this seems like it must be a labor of love. Yeah. And reading a little bit more about the Nth Man, because I did a little bit of research since I'd never read it, makes me completely understand why the love was there to labor over. So from Wikipedia... The storyline is complex, following numerous characters through war zones, plague-ridden post-apocalyptic landscapes inside a video game, alien worlds, and various points in time and space. So, you know, there's that. Apparently, in Earth 8908, World War III happened because this dude named Alfie O'Megan destroyed the entire nuclear arsenal of the planet. So there was a conventional and biological World War III, and everything kind of went to hell. Now, Alfie O'Megan was a character that grew up in the same orphanage as John Doe, the Nth Man, the Ultimate Ninja. And uh, Alfie Omegan, like Alpha Omega, it, it's a pun. It's, uh, it's a Peter David quality pun right there. And so bear all that in mind as we continue with this issue. But before we do, I want to pull in a scene that we didn't talk about when it came up earlier, which is from Excalibur number 21, because this is going to be relevant. So we cut to Excalibur 21 at Earth 616 in Hyde Park. So Vixen and her identically gangster-dressed assistants meet 
Nigel Frobisher and Jamie Braddock. And she's really not, you know, worried about them because she's got a bunch of soldiers in the woods. But she's immediately overpowered by Jamie, who turns the assistant's guns into bird cages and the soldiers into Tweety Birds. And I love that that's how Jamie uses his powers, that he just kind of makes a mockery of reality of any kind of actual threat by just making it all cartoony. Because to him, the world is not real. The world is a dream and it just sort of amuses him. Yeah, he literally believes he is dreaming these things and that nothing he does matters. So everything is to his own amusement, including apparently his wardrobe, which is a very skimpy white loincloth that gives me the creeps. And as I recall, that's what he was wearing when he was being tortured by Dr. Crocodile way back in the day. And I guess he just never really worried about changing. The more I think of it, the more I just don't want to think about it. But Uh, I'm like, why can't you imagine yourself some clothes, Jamie Braddock? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, if it's a dream, you might as well just be comfortable. Maybe it's really warm out there. Maybe he sweats easily. God. (laughs) I'm just making it worse, right? Yes. (laughs) So Jamie snaps into action and he ends up turning Vixen into a fox because if there's anything Jamie loves beyond skimpy loincloths, it is puns. Right. And, you know, Vixen is a a female fox, etc. At this point, Nigel is really pissed off because... You know, he has this big plan. He's been sent by Satire 9 to make a lot of things happen, and he needed Vixen for her crime lord position, and now she's, you know, a little fuzzy animal. But fortunately, Jamie also has a fix for this. He turns Nigel into Vixen, which this isn't even the first time that Nigel has been turned into a woman since back in the day, TechNet, Joy Boy, looked into his mind and saw his dual desires of wanting to be the ultimate man and the ultimate woman, which was Courtney Ross. So he turned him into sort of an amalgam of the two. Yeah. So there's been a lot of gender strangeness going on with Nigel since very early on. And Jay and I went into this in in greater detail earlier. But uh, suffice to say, that part continues. So now what we have is Nigel Frobisher still working for Jamie Braddock, Nigel sometimes looking like himself and sometimes looking like Vixen, and the original Vixen being a fox that Jamie just sort of keeps around for laughs. So heading back to issue number 27. Jamie Braddock sits, watching the world whiz by wee in wonderment, pausing every so often to note to himself with a giggle of sagacious delight, like the supercomputer Shalmaneser in John Brenner's classic stand on Zanzibar, Cripes, what an imagination I've got, because reality, to us, to him, is purest make-believe, thinks himself fast asleep, you see, and all about him, the sum and substance of gossamer, fantasy, and the way the captions are done on this page, as we look at Jamie, who's just sort of grinning maniacally, staring at nothing, like, there's no punctuation anywhere in there, and the caption boxes themselves, like, they're not all upright, some of them are kind of diagonal, cascading into one another, and it really gets this wonderful sense of just sort of maniacal, pointless urgency. Mm -hmm. That's something I think this issue does really, really well with Jamie Braddock, is it just gets you into his head, into his mindset a lot better than any previous issue has. Yeah, it immediately sucks you into his world, so you see through his eyes, and it's kind of an uncomfortable place. It totally, totally is. And so Nigel, who's still working with Jamie and who is now the stand-in for Vixen, comes in kind of freaking out because he just saw in the news that Excalibur, their greatest nemeses, are in fact back. And also, we must note here that Jamie has brought back his old housekeeper slash caretaker, Emma, from the dead to take care of him. And Nigel, because he's the biggest dick in the world, Emma comes to offer him tea and he slaps it out of her hand, splashing tea all over her face. And then is suddenly terrified because, you know, she's... Jamie's friend and servant, and he is all-powerful. Jamie is crazy, but he is still more decent than Nigel. Right, because Nigel is 
He's just kind of a little shit, basically. Yeah, he's someone who has no bottom. He can sink as low as he feels he needs to if he thinks there's a benefit for him at the end. He has no morals. He has no code of honor. Nothing. He's just a worm. I kind of enjoy that about him. Like, having a villain that is just purely despicable is really satisfying sometimes. Yeah, in this day of the antihero, it's almost kind of a rarity that he's just a complete slug. So, Jamie, after playfully turning Nigel into Vixen wearing a truly bondage leathery uh, outfit in time for Vixen's meeting with the Underworld, figures, okay, well, let's at least see what's going on with Excalibur. And he snaps his fingers and turns on the TV, and the world suddenly goes white. Reality kind of undoes itself. Then suddenly we're at a movie studio where Excalibur meets Di Thomas and Brigadier Alison Stewart, who are dismayed to hear that Shadowcat was lost, as Rachel, of course, quietly blames herself. Yeah, Excalibur's sort of explaining the way things have been going since they got back. But yeah, they've been called in by Di Thomas and Alison Stewart of the Weird Happenings organization because there's some weird happenings going on. Weird happenings in Excalibur? What? Well, I never. So, (laughs) specifically, somebody from an alternate universe, or who claims to be from an alternate universe, has just sort of appeared. Now, Excalibur isn't terribly shocked. I mean, they know from alternate universes. Like, they know too much about alternate universes. Yeah, they should be sick of it. But they are introduced to a Dr. Candy Goodstroke, dirty. Yeah, uh, she's she's (laughs) actually a character from the Nth Man. She was a psychologist. Maybe there's an explanation for her having that name in the Nth Man book itself. I don't know. But for right now, it's just, I mean, what can you even say? But she doesn't even believe that they're real because in her reality, comic book characters are just comic book characters. She thinks she's in one of Alfie's delusions and that they are, you know, characters from his favorite books. And uh, to remind everyone, Alfie Omegan is omniscient. He can alter reality. And so his love of pop culture means sometimes he alters reality into pop culture. In fact, at one point, I looked this up, he gave Dr. Candy Goodstroke the Silver Surfer's silver surfboard so she could fly around. (laughs) The more I read about the Nth Man, the more I need to track it down because it sounds gloriously batshit. So it's really unsurprising that Dr. Goodstroke is pretty, you know, unflustered to find herself in a completely different reality. Now, Rachel scans her mind using her telepathy and finds out that, yes, this is the case. She comes from a post-apocalyptic world where World War III happened and everything is kind of terrible, and there's this big omniscient dude named Alfie. And having done her telepathic duty, Rachel just kind of wanders off, because as we've seen in the last few issues, she's been through a lot lately. She walks, no interest in where her wayward steps lead her, using the hollow echo of high heels on pavement, a sharp staccato metronome, to drown out her memories. So I guess we've evolved from angry Claremontian narrator into noir Claremontian narrator. I think I feel pretty good about that. And then Kurt swoops in with a white tux hat and cane. Of course, he's been outfitted by the movie's uh, costumiers. And he finds her, lays on the charm, and starts to dance up the boardwalk with her as he comforts her about Kitty. Kurt is so smooth and, like, so kind when he's being smooth. Like, he's using his smooth for good and not for evil. I appreciate that about Kurt Wagner. He is just so gallant and he's so sensitive. And, Kurt, you need a girlfriend. Oh, man. He'll get lots. (laughs) It won't really work out with any of them. Comics. And this would be nice and charming and wonderful, but Rachel, who's not in a great psychological place, suddenly sees him as Spiral, the woman that led her into the wild ways, into Mojo's domain when she was taken away from Uncanny X-Men way before coming into Excalibur. She sees that the boardwalk they're on is actually Spiral's winding path, and she freaks the fuck out. Cue a giant phoenix flare that's visible even from where the rest of Excalibur is. 
And then to add a further twist, Rachel and Kurt then disappear and are replaced by a white-haired dude who's now in Kurt's outfit and a tough blonde lady in Rachel's. And that's not all that's weird that's going on, because suddenly Jamie Braddock is sitting inside a giant TV watching the proceedings, and some guy dressed as Galactus is reaching for Kurt and Rachel where they are in new outfits of their own. Okay. Yeah, when I first reread this, I was just like, wait, what? Who is this? What? Like, this issue is very good at knocking the reader off balance. Yeah, and I mean, that makes sense because all the characters are confused, so it makes sense that the readers should be as well. But suddenly there's a big fight because, I mean, come on, Phoenix. It's Rachel Summers. She's not in very good headspace at all, and she's got the Phoenix Force inside her. So even though there's this giant guy in a Galactus suit, that's, hey, it's two Galactus costumes and three issues. Not bad reaching for her, even though he looks pretty powerful himself, and even though it's clear to anyone who knows about the Nth Man that this is probably Alfie Omegan, the Phoenix is still the Phoenix. Exactly. If you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if you're Rachel Summers' Phoenix, everybody else looks like a punching bag. So <laughs> so Jamie Braddock in his giant television is amused watching the whole thing. Alfie is kind of baffled by somebody equally omniscient and all-powerful. Uh-uh. No deal. Absolutely impossible. Can't be. I'm unique. Nothing and no one like me. Only one word to say to that, Swift. McGubgub. This nonsense is making my head hurt. Easy solution. Blow your brains out. Works for me. Oh, I love how creepy Jamie is here. Super creepy. And that they're both like these weird kind of, again, omniscient beings who are kind of looking at each other. And Alfie, on one hand, of course, is you know, flummoxed, and Jamie is just like, yep, just another day in my dream time. Hello. Right, I mean, Jamie exists in a realm of basically pure chaos, although it does interest me here that he mentions the McGubgub thing, the thing from the cold open, because that implies he has this intensely detailed knowledge of Alfie Omegan, and thus this other alternate reality. Well, you can see, when you see from Jamie's perspective, that he can see the very makeup of everyone around him, so maybe that does give him some inside knowledge to everything he sees. Maybe, Yeah. So as all this is going on, this giant fight between Phoenix and Alfie Omegan, Nightcrawler tries to reason with Jamie Braddock, after complaining that his pants have no hole for his tail now that he's in different pants, trying to convince Jamie to stop this whole thing, because if he's all-powerful, he clearly could. Jamie, however, yeah, he disagrees. This is television, Bubbala. Conflicts have to be resolved in a dynamic and visually stimulating manner. Sure, both sides could behave like rational beings, Boring, but where's the fun? And just to egg Phoenix on, let's give for your tragic demise to avenge, shall we? And tries to punch the hell out of Nightcrawler with his giant hand before Nightcrawler bamfs away. Jamie is so deliciously evil. Not even evil, just so much as chaotic. He's like a super coked up, like, 80s TV showrunner. He kind of is, yeah. No, I want to see him hanging out with Eric Beale from Dazzler. Actually, no, maybe I don't want to see that. Maybe that would be too horrible. Yeah, yeah, they would implode. Yeah. They could guest star on Asshole Factor. They could guest star on Asshole Factor. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. So Jamie's getting bored. He hits the rewind button on a nearby remote control that's uh, on top of the TV and just sort of disappears, which gives Nightcrawler the ability to watch what happened in the past on the TV screen, seeing a similar TV with Alfie holding Candy Goodstroke, and her just disappearing in a flash. So clearly, the two TVs in uh, the two universes were responsible for this weird crossover. Does it make a lot of sense? Nah, not really, but it is a striking visual, so I'll give it that. So Kurt hits the fast forward to show Rachel the consequences of potentially killing Alfie, it's that a phoenix flare would destroy the entire city. So that's unfortunate. 
Now, I gotta say, I mean, we've talked about all the characters developing over time, and some of that is through their relationships. The fact that it's Kurt talking to Jamie here, the fact that I don't think Captain Britain interacts with Jamie Braddock this entire issue, like, you mentioned that that felt kind of weird, and I totally agree with you. That seems like a missed opportunity. Yeah, it seems like missed opportunity to not explore the relationship between Jamie and Brian on the one hand, but on the other, I guess it speaks to the strength of the character of Jamie that you don't need to exploit you know, that relationship, even though it's pretty low-hanging fruit. I mean, it's right there. So anyway, we've seen what's been going on with Nightcrawler and with Phoenix. What about the people who are now wearing their clothing? What about these newcomers? So Captain Britain and Megan immediately attack Doe and Novakova. And Novakova says to her partner, They're attacking you, fool. Do something. Why, Novi Cakes, how utterly retro-trad, asking me to save you. Rin Pyo To Zai Zen Jin Retsu Shou Kai. And then gravity reverses as he does a bunch of ninja hand jive. And everyone just sort of floats up into the air. And I have got to read the Nth Man. What is happening with this character? It's wonderful. He's got an Uzi and no shirt and gray hair and can do ninja magic and calls this agent Novi Cakes. Like, what? I want more of this. <laughs> Novakova is skeptical. She's like, oh, of course, you're just hypnotizing everyone. So it's clear we only get a small glimpse of their relationship. But she's like... The scully to his molder. So Doe and Novakova escape and they end up in the war movie set. And you see on the back of a production assistant, or perhaps it's the director, that the name of the movie is The Nom, which is actually another Marvel comic that was also edited by Larry Hama, who created The Nth Man. So full circle. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing a bunch of ads for The Nom in my old comics. Never actually read it. I don't know if it was any good, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so many connections. So, yeah, they're continuing to try to figure out what's going on to escape. They're also complaining about the costumes they're in because the Nth Man is like, wait, these shoes have two giant toes? That doesn't work for me. And Novakova is just thinking, okay, A, high heels are horribly impractical for a secret agent spy person like myself, and B, I'm covered in spikes. I'm poking the crap out of myself. At the same time, we also see Nightcrawler complaining that there's no hole for his tail in the Nth Man's pants. Right. I mean, I guess the moral of the story is don't trade clothes with people who have drastically different forms or superpowers than you. Yeah, yeah, they really should have thought of that. That's a lesson we could all learn from. So, yeah, there's, you know, more fighting and as the director is fuming about the destruction of the set. And I do enjoy that there's, I guess, a production assistant or something just kind of tallying up the total of the damages. It kind of reminds me of, again, the Eric Beale versus Dazzler Hollywood issue where there were the production assistants behind always waving papers for the uh, producer to sign. He was ignoring them. Mm -hmm, I don't know. I enjoy mm -hmm. those little background details. Yeah, no, I think it adds a lot of color to it. It makes me wonder what Chris Claremont's personal experience must have been with the movie world, if at all. Like, of course, Marvel wasn't doing movies back then the way they are now, but he seems to have a viewpoint. As this conflict continues to escalate with everyone beating the crap out of each other and no one knowing what the hell is going on, Kurt figures, okay, well, the remote appears to be manipulating reality, this television remote right here, so what if I hit the cancel button, which is supposed to undo all settings? Okay, now it's been a long time since I used a VCR. Was was that a thing? I do not remember that. I think I think this is a Jamie Braddock invention. Okay. But regardless, it does work because when cancel is hit, everything just kind of goes back to normal. We're right back where we were when Excalibur first arrived to talk to the Weird Happenings organization. Dr. Candy Goodstroke has just suddenly vanished, so apparently that mystery is solved. And it's as if none of this ever happened. It's as if this weird crossover with the Nth Man wasn't really a thing. Yeah, Kurt is dancing with Rachel and everyone's like, well, Dr. Goodstroke is gone. I guess we solved this somehow. We don't know how, but all right, let's go home. 
And Rachel's feeling pretty down because she still is depressed from when she was walking around on her own as Kurt came up to her being all Fred Astaire. But Nightcrawler does manage to comfort her, telling her, you know, maybe you can prevent your future. Maybe you can't. Maybe this horrible post-apocalyptic reality you saw in Dr. Goodstroke's head is what's in store for us, and maybe it's not. But we've seen so many weird things throughout our various endeavors and adventures that you got to know that anything is possible, and maybe we're going to find a way to make this all work. And Rachel says, that's my Nightcrawler, ever the eternal, magnificent, cockeyed optimist. And so there are our three strange villain issues that we're going to cover today. I got to say, none of them are what I think of when I think of Excalibur as a comic, but there's some really good, enjoyable, unexpected stuff in there. Absolutely. I feel like once Alan Davis left, they're still kind of finding their footing. With Alan Davis as part of the team, Excalibur was such a singular thing, and they're finding their way to see what Excalibur is going to be going into the future. But the stories are still really enjoyable. The characters are still there, and it's definitely keeping my interest. Yeah, and for any listeners who are not so into this era, don't worry, before too very long, Claremont will be back, and then Alan Davis will be back, and things will get especially excellent. Yay! In the meantime, you've got questions. GPAC3 asks on Tumblr, Do you think the plans for Mutant Wars could ever be resurrected the 12 style? Okay, so to recap, the Mutant Wars was a big crossover being built up to at this time, involving all the different mutant factions fighting each other. It never actually happened. We got the Extinction Agenda instead. And the 12 was a storyline that was teased way back in the 80s and ended up happening more than a decade later, involving Apocalypse gathering the 12 most powerful mutants and things getting very confusing. So could you do the one the way you did the other? Could you bring back that plotline way later and still make it work? I don't think you could without some major changes, because... With the 12, I mean, that's a pretty general idea. There are these 12 very powerful mutants they are going to lead to, you know, the ruin or salvation of the future. Like, you could go in a lot of directions with that. But as far as the mutant wars, I think one of the reasons that it would have worked back in 1991 or so was that the X-Villain factions were relatively limited. I mean, in terms of major powers, we have that Colonel Vashon guy describing the mutant liberation front, Apocalypse and presumably his horsemen, Mr. Sinister and presumably his marauders, and the Shadow King, and presumably his Hellfire Club. So basically, four big groups. That's manageable, that's reasonable, especially when you have about the same number of X-teams. I mean, you know, you have like the Freedom Force and the Reavers, but they're smaller, so I wouldn't really count them. But these days, I mean, X-Men's just been going on for so long that you have tons and tons of iconic villains. You have Apocalypse-related villain groups from the Apocalypse Twins to Clan Akaba, anti-mutant groups from the Purifiers, okay, they were around before, but not recurring at that point, to the Friends of Humanity, alien races from the inhabitants of Breakworld to Sublime and Archaea. I mean, the weight of X-Men history just, I think it makes it too far-reaching. Maybe it would be less far-reaching if you limited it to just mutant opponent teams, just mutant groups of villains, but that would also feel very artificial because those are only a fraction of what the X-Men pay attention to. So, I guess, in conclusion, I don't think you could do it the same way, and I'm kind of glad because I really enjoy the Mutant Wars as this incredibly elaborate build-up to something that didn't happen, it's just a fun example of how comics can work, or more specifically, how comics can occasionally not work. And on a practical level, I mean, Marvel just concluded Civil War II, which is also a bunch of, you know, superheroes and supervillains, like, fighting all the time. I feel like Marvel could use a little break before they do anything like that. Yes, maybe take a break from some events for a while, Marvel. I mean, yeah. I, I know you won't, but it would be really nice. Yes. Just give the book some time to breathe. Thanks. They could really use it. Let the ants build their anthill, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, To what extent are comic book characters or any shared universe ongoing characters defined for you by their best representations in the various stories as opposed to their worst representations? 
I would say rather than best and worst, I go with my favorite representations versus my least favorite. For example, really my favorite incarnations of Jean Grey are Phoenix, pre-Dark Phoenix Jean Grey, and then time-shifted young Jean Grey, who was introduced in all new X-Men. The weird thing is, you know, both of these Jean Greys aren't actually Jean Grey, much like Madeline, who's another one of my favorite kind of incarnations of Jean Grey. But I feel like they're the versions of Jean Grey who would have existed and did exist (laughs) if Jean had had more agency and was more comfortable with her powers. So in the case of the Phoenix Jean Grey, this is a little easier for my poor brain because Jean Grey Prime did absorb the memories of the Phoenix Jean Grey. So long story short, I guess I should say I just pick and choose the aspects, storylines, writers I like the best and chalk the ones I don't like up to circumstances or editorial edicts or la la la, I can't hear you. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, for me, I'm kind of on the same page. Like, you're going to have good and bad errors for any given character. Like, the two I come back to the most probably are Cable and Psylocke. I think they've had some of the highest highs and lowest lows of any X characters. I mean, it's all canon, obviously. But for me, when I'm thinking about who those characters really are, like, I don't think of Cable as the mysterious background gruff mercenary who is just there to, you know, sell a lot of books because he's badass looking. I think of him as the interesting gruff dad reevaluating his choices and trying to figure out what to do now that his purpose is complete. I don't think of Psylocke as the, you know, incredibly sexualized, flirting with Scott Summers for very little narrative justification murderous badass. I think of her as the woman conflicted about, you know, the nature of life and death and the morality of killing versus her desire to do so that like Cy Spurrier writes about in his run of X-Force. I mean, it's the same character, yes, but I look at myself and I've gone through some times when I was a real pain in the ass and I made terrible decisions and was not an interesting person to be around. I don't like to think those are definitive. I'd rather think of the cool stuff I did and it's kind of the same way for X-Men characters. Agreed. J.M. Miles Explained the X-Men is entirely listener-supported, and listeners who donate at certain levels get acknowledged on air by a variety of fictional characters. I'll turn it over to Galactus. The continued threat to my existence that is Rebecca Tex Smith is one that I cannot accept. With this instrument, I shall liberate the cosmic forces that provide her power from their fleshly casement, restoring the natural order of the cosmos. Forrest and Dave Ethington, my heralds, bring me this bioform that the universe might be made safe from her unchecked and infinite power. And speaking of infinite power, Elizabeth, thank you for lending yours to this episode of the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure. So where can people find what you're working on these days? Uh, you can learn more about Geekcraft Expo at geekcraftexpo.com and the double clicks at thedoubleclicks.com. Indeed. So check those things out if you are so compelled. Elizabeth, I suspect we will see you uh, once again the next time Jay travels. But in the meantime, Jay and Miles Explain the X Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener supported as Galactus helped illustrate. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Jay will be back in town and back at the mic. As Richter has an even worse time in the sewers than most people would, Sabretooth dies for real, we swear, and a book about teenagers continues to star an angry old man. Mm-hmm.